Global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. On Good Value, hear discussions about Antipodes' best investment ideas and perspectives on industry and macroeconomic trends. In recent weeks, the wheels have been turning on market rotation. COVID-19 vaccines are emerging. First Pfizer, then Moderna both announcing successful trial results. Markets responded swiftly, with cyclicals favoured over the more popular secular growth winners. But life won't automatically revert to pre-COVID status quo. Certain behaviour won't completely normalise. So, where to from here? Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. It's Alison Savas from Antipodes and joining me for this new episode on the Antipodes podcast is Consumer and Domestic Services Developed Markets Portfolio Manager, Andrew Bow. Hi Alison. Andrew, we're going to discuss the recent rotation we've seen on the back of the vaccine news and the outlook for the markets from this point. Now, this early rotation is something we've been anticipating and preparing for as an investment team. And our listeners will remember from our first podcast, our confidence around the potential for a successful vaccine had grown, particularly after speaking to vaccine experts like Dr. Michael Farzan. Now, we've all had some time to digest the Pfizer and Moderna news but I wanted to first ask you what you think the next steps are for these companies. Yeah, look, it's, it's worth highlighting just a, a few data points. We know efficacy of the first two vaccines is around 95%, which is absolutely fantastic, and also positive for the durability of the vaccine. And it also means we are within reach of achieving the nirvana of so-called herd immunity, assuming, of course, a strong uptake of the vaccine. Another data point we found really interesting or critical was that 40% of candidates within Pfizer's trial were in the 56 to 85 year old age bracket, which of course is the population that's most at risk from COVID. Pfizer reported efficacy in people aged over 65 was 94%. Now this is really positive. And a good uptake from the most at risk populations will materially reduce the number of severe, including fatal, COVID cases in the future. So where to from here? Well, the drug companies have been working very closely with the regulators throughout the trials, including the FDA, which is the US drug, re drug regulator, meaning emergency use authorization could be granted for both vaccines by mid-December. The FDA will hold public briefings to discuss data, which has been submitted for emergency use authorization which we believe can go a long way to informing the general public's view on the safety of these vaccines. And this is important because we believe the public's confidence in vaccine safety will be a key driver of a broader uptake. Now, we'd expect, therefore, that priority access be given to aged care residents and the frontline healthcare workers, followed by essential workers, the elderly and the at-risk population. And then we suspect vaccines go to the super spreaders, such as college students, as the next priority. Now, what's pretty remarkable is just how quickly the rollout can actually ramp. 
I mean, Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines require two doses each, taken three to four weeks apart. And together, both companies are expecting to have 70 million doses of vaccine available by the end of 2020. Because of the extent to which manufacturing is scaling for both companies, 70 million people could receive their first dose by year end and the second by early next year. Pfizer is expecting to have 500 million doses of vaccine available by April 2021. And Moderna believes the whole of the US can be vaccinated by around mid next year. And that's just amazing. Pfizer and Moderna's combined vaccine production could reach more than 1.8 billion doses by the end of next year, enough to vaccinate 900 million people. And let's not forget, we also have the second generation vaccines under development. These are vaccines by Sanofi, which is a stock we own in the portfolio, and Novavax. Their vaccines use a more traditional protein-based approach, which may have even better efficacy and durability. Assuming, of course, these second gen vaccines are just as successful, we could see mass availability by the second half of next year and total vaccine production could end up reaching more than 6 billion doses by the end of 2021, or enough to actually vaccinate 3 billion people. So as I touched on earlier, we've been saying for a while that a successful COVID-19 vaccine was important for markets, but particularly to catalyse that rotation um, within the market. And you can see how the market has behaved in the aftermath of the Pfizer and Moderna news. So cyclicals have outperformed defensives by just over 5%. So the rotation has already started to happen, but importantly, we think it still has legs. Now with more big COVID waves still sweeping you know, through the US and Europe, full reopening still has some way to go uh, and consumption is yet to normalise. So, so Andrew, how important is a vaccine for us as consumers to normalise our own behaviour? Yeah, I mean, we, we think it's key, particularly in Western economies. Clearly, if we can nuke the threat of COVID, we can emerge from lockdowns and our homes and get on with living again. And that means re-socialising again with whoever we like and whenever we want to. So we can get back to the restaurants and the bars, going to shopping centres, getting out to the footy and booking flights. Now, if we bring it back to the stock market though, the major beneficiaries of the vaccine are the business exposed to the more cyclical, economically sensitive parts of the market that have suffered immensely from the lockdowns and social distancing. And we suspect the highly rated growth at any price stocks will get moved to the back seat. This is what we mean when we talk about vaccines catalyzing a rotation within markets. And let's not forget, market performance has been very narrow this year. In fact, it's as narrow as it was at the height of the tech bubble in the late 90s, early 2000s. A handful of stocks, namely the big cap tech, have accounted for the bulk of the move in the S&P for the year to date. Now, because of the extent of crowding in these same names, we're seeing high levels of volatility as the news from vaccines has developed. The markets have favoured growth stocks for some time now, but COVID added fuel to the fire. This year's winners have been e-commerce stocks, you know, the, the uh, stay-at-home beneficiaries like Netflix or home fitness stocks like Peloton, and the work-from-home enablers like Microsoft and Zoom. DIY as people get forced to spend more time at home, supermarkets and food delivery while we weren't able to eat out. I mean, Alison, I know my family has certainly ramped up the usage rates of Uber Eats, but a vaccine changes this. 
Since we've had the vaccine news, the market is starting to see cyclicals in a different light, where financials, energy, industrials, and retail have been some of the best performing stocks so far this month, while software and internet businesses have lagged. So the rotation is happening, but like you said, we think there's still more to come. Okay, so let's talk about the portfolio. How has the portfolio pivoted as confidence around a vaccine has grown? Well, in total, our exposure to developed world reopening beneficiaries has increased roughly 5% since the end of September to around 30% of the portfolio today. And this has come at the expense of our global defensives, which have fallen roughly the same, 5% to around 26% of the portfolio. And global defensives include software, internet businesses, healthcare, precious metals. Generally, those parts of the market that were beneficiaries of lockdown. So that's positioning done at an aggregate level. But a look at some of the, our individual holdings, which form part of our reopening clusters, is probably a little more interesting. Firstly, to our financials, we have around 14% across the portfolio, with half of that in developed markets, where we focus mostly on robust retail banking franchises, that being Capital One Financial and ING, two of our key holdings, dominate their respective markets. We're mostly talking credit cards in the US for Capital One, and it's more about mortgages in Northern Europe for ING. Credit costs have been low, whilst consumers have been well supported by income stimulus and government support. You know, and most importantly, these banks aren't being disrupted by some savvy fintech companies. And Capital One is the only large US bank fully transitioning to cloud, which will be completed in 2021, this will actually give Capital One greater ability to innovate its product offering so the bank can compete with newly minted fintechs and better assess the credit risk of its customers. And ING really was arguably the original technology disruptor with its predominantly online business model. Both companies are valued at potential sustainable payout yields of more than 10%, which includes both dividends and the buybacks. And once regulatory approval to restart, capital distributions has been granted. This should be a clear catalyst for re-rating in the new year. We also have our developed market retail exposures at around 10% of the portfolio. Thanks to COVID, e-commerce increased from roughly 15% of total US retail sales at the end of last year to about 25%, as lockdown and social distancing pushed more consumption online. And even in a reopened environment, online penetration is not falling back to 15%. There's definitely been certain changes in consumer behaviour triggered by COVID that are here to stay. Across the retail landscape, there's been a permanent shakeout, particularly with retails dependent on more foot traffic, like a few high profile bankruptcies in the US, such as, you know, for example, there's Neiman Marcus, which is a premium end department store chain not too dissimilar to David Jones in Australia. Another is JCPenney, which is more of a mass market department store chain. So in our portfolio, we focused on retailers that can seamlessly straddle both the offline and online worlds, otherwise known as the omni-channel operators. So Andrew, for, for the listeners who might not be aware, can you touch on what omni-channel means? It's a bit of a horrible term, but omni-channel retail refers to a multi-channel offering from retailers, which basically allows consumers to shop either in a store, online, or a combination of both. Now, a great example of that is a retailer like Ulta Beauty, one of the largest specialty beauty chains in the US. It's kind of a similar 
beauty concept to what people may know as Sephora or Mecca for our local listeners. But Ulta actually stands apart for providing both mass and prestige brands to consumers under the one roof. Both Ulta and Sephora have been the major market share gainers over the past decade, and we're expecting more growth from them for the next decade. The growth of Ulta has attracted the attention of all leading incumbent brands and some of the exciting new brands that must compete for limited in-store and online shelf space across both mass and prestige categories. Also, it's worth noting, Ulta has relatively more buying power or market share, if you like, within prestige, which is generally growing faster and with higher profitability than the mass market. The beauty industry, industry remains quite attractive. It grows at a fairly predictable rate of 3 to 4% per annum, and we think Ulta can do better than that by taking more market share. And that's going to be mostly or largely at the expense of department stores and a very large or very long tail of smaller market participants. Whilst Ulta did suffer from COVID, having to shut down its 1,200-odd stores, it was well-placed from early online investment to drive its e-commerce platform with its customers. In fact, its online sales have been growing at triple digits. But Ulta also remains a reopening beneficiary as customers get back to the stores for the unique advice and experience from testing products and getting their hair and eyebrow treatments. Now, you mentioned shopping centres earlier. Well, my observation in Sydney is that the shopping centres really are buzzing again. Yeah, it's a great point. And uh, another one of our retail holdings is, in fact, Simon Property Group, and that is a premium outlet centre in Moorreet in the US. And as we mentioned earlier, we have seen an acceleration in the penetration of online retail resulting from COVID-19. But also, interestingly, we've noticed some latent demand when stores have reopened in a number of geographies and two favourable trends emerging for the traditional store networks. Firstly, they are reducing their last mile online delivery costs by learning to fulfil from stores located nearest to the customers. And secondly, a term of you know a term used is BOPUS, which stands for buy online, pick up in store, or others may refer to it as click and collect, has been a revelation for many retailers as more customers than you think are choosing to pick up their online orders from store. And we all know Americans still love to drive, remember, which in turn saves the retailer a huge postal delivery expense. So our view is that retail space in the US will consolidate into distinctive formats that enable omnichannel retailing, being premium malls and premium outlet centres. They will be the survivors of this. And Simon Property Group is one of the best ways to capture exposure to this with its scarce premium real estate assets. Now, in terms of the total US retail market, well, there are just over 1,200 tiered malls and outlet centres in the US. However, the premium A-grade, or better malls if you like, represent less than 25% of these by count, and around 30, 32% by selling space. These premium properties remain relevant in a post-COVID retail world as some of the weaker malls die off and retailers choose to consolidate into, their higher, into these higher traffic centres. The Simon portfolio earns over 80% of its net operating income from these A-grade or better rated premium properties. And Simon has now over 40% share of the premium malls and outlets in the US, making them a go-to partner for quality retailers. And of course, you know, we're not under, you know, we're under no illusions as to the adjustments that will occur in the retailing industry. Yes, some Simon tenants will disappear, 
as they have during prior retail cycles, but they'll also be replaced by retailers looking for access to high traffic real estate. Currently the mall and outlet space does over-index to apparel retailing, however, we believe that over time this will adjust and you'll see alternate categories start to emerge. And whilst we wait for sentiment to improve, we're getting paid a sustainable 6% cash dividend yield with a historically large spread to the 10-year treasuries that we expect to compress over time. And now I might be, may be going on a bit here, Alison, but if I uh, throw in one more, which of course is Coca-Cola, everyone knows that one, needs no explanation. But what many of our listeners may not realise is that Coke generates just over 40% of its total global revenues from on-premise consumption. Again, that relates back to the cafes, the restaurants, the bars, you know, new sporting venues, all of which have been shuttered thanks to lockdown and social distancing. So as well as being a reopening opportunity, let's not forget that Coke is distinctive from most other consumer staples by retaining its strong influence over its, you know, bottle supply chain right up to delivery and stocking customer shelves. This helps Coke keep distribution costs low, maintain its customer relationships and sustain pricing power by capturing innovation on its vast platform. And as reopening gathers pace, Coke will grow faster than its peers again and should benefit from a relative re-rating. Okay, what about travel? When it comes to beaten up sectors, travel-related exposures have been some of the worst hit by COVID. But surely uh, these will be some of the greatest beneficiaries of a vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've already got my mum flying up on a plane from Melbourne today to see the grandkids. Now, to bring, again, bring it back to portfolio, well, Antipodes has around 4% of the portfolio in travel-related exposures. But we've been selective where we have added travel to the portfolio. We think domestic travel comes back before international, and we don't think business travel mean reverts. So companies that are overly dependent upon business travels could, in fact, end up beating future value traps if you're not too careful. GE is a stock we've had in the portfolio for some time, and we've always liked it for its global aerospace engines business. You know, and that prior to the pandemic accounted for around two thirds of the earnings. The jet engine business is a lucrative global oligopoly where GE still has 70% share of smaller, narrow-bodied planes, which makes it well-positioned for a revival in domestic travel. And the company also has a 50% share of the wide-bodied plane market. And just to finish off, I mean, we think online travel agent or OTA, booking.com, will also be a key travel beneficiary that's not dependent upon a return to international travel. We use the sharp sell-off you know, in that stock as a great opportunity to include it, you know, within the portfolio. So we've had the positive vaccine news and the market has shown signs of rotating. But is there still risk around COVID-19? Well, I mean, we're com- confident that a vaccine will be successful, but we think the pathway to get there may still have, you know, obviously, some twists and turns. The timing of ultimate vaccine success and broad availability of the vaccine is still uncertain. And in the meantime, you know, we've got detected infection rates in Europe and the US at very high levels, and we're watching these, you know, very closely. And the increase in infection rates aren't completely unexpected. We are entering into, you know, what is now Northern Hemisphere winter, winter, where the testing capacity is increased, and we're talking about a very contagious virus still. The more we look for COVID-19, obviously, the more we will find it. 
And because of this, it's just as important to track hospitalizations and deaths and not just infection counts. Fortunately for us, the Western healthcare system is much better at dealing with COVID-19 than it was earlier in the year, thanks to you know, changes to treatment plans, sending patients with mild cases home to recover and self-isolate. Also stockpiling equipment um, like ventilators and repurposing resources like the ICU capacity, the beds and the nurses. Even though infection counts are rising, broadly speaking, hospitals still have adequate capacity to treat patients. However, you know, there are gonna be some emerging choke points, including some certain US Midwest states and France and Italy, where COVID ICU bed utilization rates, you know, still running at around 50%. The fatality rate of reported incremental infections in the US is roughly running at 1.4% compared to a peak of 6% in the US and 10%, in fact, you know, earlier this year in Europe but remains high, still remains high relative to seasonal flu, i.e. it's actually still 20 times worse. Which is why ultimate vaccine success is so important to the permanent reopening of the economy. Now, while we expect you know, North American and Western European COVID-19 data to get worse in the near term, it's also worth remembering that place called China, which has normalized already with 1.4 billion people without even a vaccine. And that's because of strict policies regarding social distancing from the outset of the virus. So hotel occupancy and domestic air passenger movements are at pre-COVID levels of activity already, and retail, property and auto sales have all normalised in China. And its GDP is forecast to grow 2.5% this year, while the US and Europe are still contracting. But we can see US and Europe are trying to avoid widespread hard lockdowns despite the increase in infections. Clearly, they're trying to get or strike that balance between you know, maintaining a healthy eco economy and also the health of the society. It sounds like we might be in an um, information vacuum where we could see some alarming infection data in the US or Europe while we're still waiting for the next development on the vaccine front. Again, you know, I think that's right. I mean, the other risk is that we are beginning to see an air pocket uh, in Western economic data as service sectors again start to suffer under the impact of the Northern Hemisphere lockdowns. In, you know, add to this mix the replenishment of US income stimulus, which continues to be delayed by a lack of congressional consensus, and the US political backdrop remains clouded you know, post the election with this runoff now that must happen uh, with the two Senate seats for Georgia. That happens in early January. And given the importance of this outcome, as wins by the Democrats would trigger a switch in Senate control and finalise a blue sweep, both parties you know, are remaining in full campaign mode. And, and while we are confident regarding the ultimate destination, we're deliberately running a higher stock count in our reopening cluster to maximise exposure while, whilst you know, also diversifying stock-specific risk, given the uncertainties relating to the pathway. And then as this pathway becomes clearer, we will lean into the highest conviction names within this cluster. So in summary, I mean, we view 2021 as a year for a continuing rebound in global economic activity, where we, you know, together with vaccine ad adoption acting as the accelerant, but we could see some uncertainty in the immediate term before we get the next reopening catalyst.
which could be emergency use authorisation for the vaccines. If you'd like more information on Antipodes or our views on vaccines and reopening, please head to our website, antipodespartners.com, where we have recently published a white paper titled Vaccines, the Catalyst to Reopening. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.